Welcome back to Trinus Magnus Jab's Reality. Presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and it's really fucking late at night right now. As I record all of this. And, guys, I, I'm not gonna lie to you, the fact is, I really am exhausted. I even tried going to bed just a little while ago, but... Fate, I guess, had other plans. For some reason, I was unable to go to sleep. So, what I've decided to do, as quietly as possible, is record... something. And... I figured it would probably be... wisest, I suppose to do another episode of Trinus Magnus Jab's Reality because, guys, when it comes to podcasting, I mean, the way that I've always kind of looked at it is really no time is downtime. You know, there's something you can be doing, you know, if you're determined to. Or in my case, if you're desperate enough to find something to do. So, here we are. Now, to kind of give you guys a little bit of a peek behind the curtain here, I guess as far as music is concerned, for a lot of my adolescence, and even, I would say, into my 20s. Although these days, you know, for a lot of people, it seems like their adolescence kind of extends into their 20s, or God knows, even beyond. So, to say that my adolescence actually ended in my teenage years, well, I think you're well within, you're well within your rights, I think, maybe, to question just when exactly did my adolescence end so as ever that's up for grabs but for most of my adolescence however you choose to define that i would say that as far as music is concerned i was pretty mainstream and middle of the road at least to start with and then just over time my taste in music it it just kind of it's like it went in its own sort of direction, I guess. And, you know, I, I don't know this to be true, but my guess is that, you know, given, given a long enough life, you will change your mind about literally everything, you know? And certainly, at least for me, music was kind of one of those things. As I say, started off, you know, pretty middle of the road, I would say relatively popular music and then I would say probably about the time I was 16 or 17 that just kind of changed and it was really around then that I started becoming a big fan of Led Zeppelin and then that kind of led off and to a bunch of other directions and what I noticed was that and this really was not all that long ago what I noticed is that a lot of the music that I was listening to it's it had gotten softer, you know? Now, that may seem a little bit hard for some of you to believe, because, at least to start with, on Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, which is to say my main gig, I actually used a progressive metal song as my theme song, right? That is to say, Dream Theater's Overture 1928. And... So it may seem kind of strange to some of you that, you know, my taste in music is actually 
it actually tends towards much softer stuff, but it is true. And <clears throat> at least it's true lately, you know? And, you know, one of the things that I've decided to do with Trennis Magnus pun uh, Punches Reality is just take the gloves off a little bit and talk about things that I've deliberately excluded from Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. And the reason for that is basically, number one, it kind of gives Trennis Magnus Jabs Reality a little bit of, a, of an identity of its own. But... It also is, I guess, it can be an outlet for maybe other things, right? Things that don't specifically fit into Trentus Magnus Punch's reality. So, this is a long way of giving you a disclaimer about the fact that I'm going to talk, at least in brief, about religion. And before I get into that, <clears throat> just to kind of make sure I'm beating this point to death, because, uh, because that seems to be sort of my trademark... You know, a lot of my musical diet, I suppose, like I say, it just kind of got softer and softer as time went by, right? Don't really know why that happened, or I didn't anyway, really know why that happened. And then one day, it's like you experience what alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity. And... It actually happened, oddly enough, in a religious context. As some of you know, and I, I think I discussed this in uh, my Why I Was Banned from Facebook episode, I had a sort of negative experience. This is going many years back now, but I had a sort of negative experience with the Southern Baptists, or at least one particular Southern Baptist church, you know? <clears throat> really don't care to repeat the details of that. If you're interested in hearing it, find the Trennis Magnus Punches Reality episode entitled Why I Was Banned from Facebook, and you'll get a little bit of the story there. But anyway, suffice it to say, leaving the Southern Baptist actually came along at a sort of convenient time, just because of the fact that, you know, for those of you who just aren't religious, or for that matter, you're just not a Southern Baptist, you know, it you guys need to understand that there's a... Ah, fuck it. I'm not going to protect anybody's feelings here. Basically, I... What I've... What I came to recognize, at least in the Southern... At least starting with this, this particular Southern Baptist church, is that there's a lot of uh, superficiality that goes into a lot of evangelical Christianity, you know? If you're listening to this and you consider yourself an evangelical Christian, well, just, just consider the fact that I'm just one guy. This is one guy's opinion. My opinion... <clears throat> excuse me. My opinion doesn't have to be your opinion. If you disagree, fine. But I'm just saying that your average evangelical church service, it's like it... I can't remember ever really relating to it, but there just came a point when I just tuned out. Does that make sense? As I've said in previous episodes, uh, some previous helping of Trinus Magnus Jab's reality, I mentioned that I was raised in the Churches of Christ. And suffice it to say, that doesn't exactly look like your average evangelical Christian worship service. It just doesn't. 
you know, the, the, I guess the, the hymns and the singing and the musical aspect, it's, it's completely a cappella. There is no instrumentation or anything like that. And, you know, there are reasons for that. There are reasons why they do it that way. But suffice it to say, that was the environment that I grew up in, you know. And so coming to church at a Southern Baptist congregation, it really was a, a really big case of culture shock. And it was one of those things that I don't remember ever feeling entirely comfortable with, you know. I honestly cannot remember a single time when I would when I would attend church with the Southern Baptists and they have the loud drums and the electric guitars and all of that other stuff. And I don't, it just, it just seemed so empty to me, but you know, on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's like other people seem to enjoy it. So is there something wrong with me? You know, am I the problem here? And what I eventually came to realize is that no, there's nothing wrong with me. And for that matter, there's really nothing wrong with the people who get into that stuff. It's just a matter of preference. That's all. But really to kind of go deeper than that, what I eventually came to realize is that I don't have the same fire in my veins anymore. You know, I mean, when you're 16 years old, 16, 17 and through there, you know, you've got this I don't know, this fire inside of you, you know, and you're angry at the whole world and you want to, you want to change the whole world. You want to save the world, you know, all of that stuff. And it's not that you don't care about stuff whenever you get older, but it's, I don't know. It, it, it's like your priorities change or something. I, it's hard to put it into words, but basically right around the time I was, 30, 31, 32, and through there, basically the onset of my 30s, you know, what I came to realize is that both with music as, I guess, uh, media intake, and also just what I want from my religious life, what I came to understand is that, you know, I don't, like I say, I, I didn't have that same fire in my belly that I used to have, you know, when I was younger, you know, and what I wanted not so much was this big, loud, screaming guitar solo that blows you out of your pew or something like that, or for that matter, out of your driver's side window. That's not really what I want anymore, you know, it, to whatever degree I ever wanted it. What I want right now is just peace. You know, what I want is quiet. I, I don't want to sound too pretentious here, but, you know, just a little bit of calm to ponder the inner flame or whatever you want to call it, you know, pierce the veil, whatever. It's just what I came to understand and one of the reasons, again, not the main reason, but one of the reasons that I ended up making the switch to the Catholic Church is, is really due to the fact that in my innermost being, what I, what I truly believe, hand on heart, is that church should not resemble a fucking U2 concert, you know? I mean, 
there's a limit to how nice I can be in saying that, but that's just, guys, that, that's just my God's honest opinion, you know? I'm not saying you have to agree with me. I'm, I'm just saying that's what I think, you know? And certainly that's, that's what I was going through at that time and eventually landed in the Catholic Church and, and especially the Latin Mass, you know, which is, it's just so solemn. It is so dignified. It is so elegant. And it was exactly what I needed at the time that I needed it. And I still enjoy it to this very day, you know? So there's that. But where, to kind of move away from the religious aspect, where this kind of intersects with just music in general is, like I say, I was listening to just softer and softer stuff all the time, right? And what I eventually realized is it's not something, it's not so much that I want something that's soft. What I want is something that maybe it's soft or maybe it's beautiful or maybe it's elegant or, or just whatever it is, you know, but what I don't want is just another three and a half or four minute song with a really loud guitar solo and some screaming lyrics about something or other, you know, I mean, I, I, I just don't have that in me anymore, you know? <clears throat> and so that led to this... That It basically led to me embarking upon this really strange musical journey, whereupon I kind of fell ass-backwards into the world of classical music. And that primarily is actually what I'm really here to talk about in this episode, because... What I did, and this is going back many months now, but what I did was when I really started taking a look at my iPod, what I realized is that, you know, when I would play stuff on random, you know, just shuffle, which I didn't really do all that much, but when I would play stuff on shuffle, I found myself skipping a lot of songs. Man, this is stupid. Why is this on here? Skip. Man, this is stupid. Why is this on here? Skip. Man, this is stupid. Why is this on here? Skip, you know. And there are all of these songs that are basically just wasting space on my iPod. And what I found was, you know, I was primarily listening. I mean, assuming it wasn't, you know, a podcast of some kind, you know, whether it's a comic book podcast or, or one of my history podcasts or one of my Catholic podcasts or, or just whatever it is. If it wasn't, you know, or talk radio for that matter, because, you know, you can find podcasts for that stuff too, but it's not really a podcast as such. It's a, it's talk radio that is being released in the form of a podcast, but whatever. If, if, assuming it's not talk of some kind or another, what I found was I tended to hit up specific playlists. And what I realized is, well, you know, this is just kind of stupid. You know, these playlists, why don't I add the stuff that's on these playlists that I actually do listen to? Add that stuff to my shuffle. And then I can listen to shuffle all the time, which is what I've done. And so basically my iPod these days is set to shuffle between uh, classical music, miscellaneous and sundry film scores, and then finally a little bit of Gregorian chant. And... You know, guys, I've got to tell you, commuting to work is so much easier now. You know, instead of getting uh, 
caught in this weird sort of road rage type of bubble where you're always pissed off at everybody else that's on 290 and, you know, people hanging out the window and giving each other the finger. You know, what might things be like if we were all just listening to classical music and just relax, you know, just go with the flow and it's been so fucking soothing to just listen to this and listen to all this, especially the classical music, because that's really what I'm here to talk about today. And it has just made all the difference in the world. You know, it really has. And in the course of doing all of this, you know, all of this listening to classical music, you know, you can't help but pick favorites or I can't anyway. And so what I decided to do was just basically set aside a little bit of time in an episode of Trinus Magnus Jabs Reality to talk, not necessarily about classical music in general, but specifically a few classical music pieces that I just adore. And before we get going too much into that, I do want to just take a minute and clarify on on something. You know, I know I had the I guess the basic germ of this idea like a week ago or two weeks ago or something like that. And I was thinking, you know, at some point or another, I I really do need to do that, you know, because, you know, damn it, people need to know what I'm thinking about. They need to know what I'm listening to. You know, they need to know what what my views are about whatever, you know, and, you know, it was just one of those things that was bouncing around in the back of my head for a couple of weeks or months or something like that. And that might have actually been where it ended, but then I actually heard not just, well, actually, I'll, I'll come to it in sequence, but there was one particular performance of a classical music piece that made me think, you know what, fuck it, I'm going for it. So that's what made me really decide to commit to this. Now, I no sooner decided to commit to this than I realized, you know what, motherfucker, Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Network, he didn't do a classical music episode, but he did do an episode that was all about specifically Wagner, right? Now, guys, it does need to be said that I'm a fan of Wagner, but I'm also a fan of Professor Allen, you know? I mean, I like Professor Allen. I like his voice. I like his point of view on stuff. I like how, you know, he's got on the one hand, a very mature and very rational way of talking about whatever the hell he's talking about. But at the same time, it's always unpredictable. You know, you never really know what you're going to get with him. You just know it's going to be good. You know, and that's one of the reasons why I've had him on my show so often, because the guy's friggin' awesome. You know, what do you want to hear? So point is, the last thing that I would ever want to do is take the chance of upsetting somebody that I do consider to be a friend. So I sent Professor Allen a message and I basically said, look, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Would you have a problem with that? And he very graciously replied and said, no, that's not going to be a problem at all. And everything with that's cool. So for those of you who think that this is a little too similar to what Professor Allen is, uh, has done with his uh, top Wagnerian jams show. Well, number one, I, I'm not going to talk just about Wagner. And number two, you know, this is something that I actually went into somewhat conscious of the fact that an episode 
of that show exists. But guys, it's been forever. So I think I'd, I think I listened to it like a year ago or something like that. So it's really not all that fresh in my mind. No offense, Professor Allen. But it's really not all that fresh in my mind. I don't remember exactly what he said. So I don't think there there will be any intentional similarity between this episode you're listening to right now and the Professor Allen top uh, Wagnerian jams episode. So there's your little 20-minute preamble before we can finally get down to business. Now, like I say, classical music is one of those things that I'd almost want to say it's a little bit of a kind of a boutique type of musical interest just by enjoying classical music really at all. I would say you're kind of a niche, you know? So, you know, the last thing I would want anyone to do is come away from this episode with the misunderstanding that somehow I know what the hell I'm talking about because guys, I really don't. All right. I mean, I know what I like, you know, I know what I enjoy listening to, but I I don't really know anything about classical music. In fact, hell, come to that, I don't really know a whole lot about music itself. I mean, I took a shitload of music classes when I was in school for some fucking retarded reason. I mean, it's like, you know, the state requires you to take these fucking classes, even though, let's face it, not everybody is going to be good at music, and it's just fucking retarded to... Whatever. Anyway. So, the point is, you know, I mean my musical training, it's really nothing all that different from any of the rest of you who attended public school. So put a pencil to it. That I think is a pretty good way of, uh, and a pretty long way as it happens, but also a pretty good way of leading into the classical music pieces that I want to talk about. The first of which is Tchaikovsky. Now, this track that you're about to hear, this comes from The Nutcracker. And honestly, I love all of The Nutcracker. As a matter of fact, I mean, this is one of those things that everybody associates with Christmas, and I'm certainly not... Well, I'm no exception to that, put it put it that way. I mean, I love The Nutcracker, and I love the hell out of Christmas. And so, to me, this is this is just perfect. You know, but the other thing is that even if you divorce the Christmas aspect from The Nutcracker, which I don't think you're really supposed to do, since I think it actually takes place during Christmas, but even if you wanted to divorce this, you know, specifically from Christmas, this is still amazing music. And... There are a lot of very famous pieces that come from uh, the Nutcracker, but one of my favorites is Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Because of the fact that a lot of classical music comes from, let's face it, I mean, at this point, it really is in the public domain, all or most of it, like, and I mean, like, the greats, 
right? Like the, the legends and the pioneers and, and the field and all that. Most of their stuff at this point is public domain. And so you're going to hear a lot of classical music pieces like in TV shows or in commercials or in movies or whatever. And it's an interesting thing to, or at least it's an attractive thing for a lot of these uh, movie studios and whatnot uh, to use and advertising agencies because it's recognizable music for which they don't really have to pay royalties. And so it's an overall convenient thing. But I, I got to tell you that Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies is one of the more famous classical music pieces. It's probably not the most famous, but it's definitely one of the most famous. And it's just elegant, it's beautiful, and I'm at a real loss to think of the first time that I heard this, or for that matter, any classical music piece, to be honest with you. I'm at a real loss, well, actually, except for one. The, the one that I can really remember, like the first time I really heard this, I want to say that it's Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries from the same movie as everybody else, which is to say Apocalypse Now. That's the first time I, like, really noticed it but as far as Tchaikovsky's uh, uh, Tchaikovsky's uh, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy you know I'm at a real loss to, to pinpoint the first time I heard it but I think the first time that I can remember hearing it where it stood out and I thought wow that's a really powerful piece of music it was an episode of of all things it was an episode of Garfield and Friends and what I remember is there was an episode where Garfield was asleep in that little box bed thingy he was just laying in bed he was asleep and a shadowy figure came into the room which sounds creepy when you say it that way but you know whatever the shadowy figure comes into the room and steals Pookie the teddy bear from Garfield while he's asleep and then of course the the pitch of the episode at that point is Garfield trying to track down uh, Pookie and figure out just you know what the fuck is going on around here and that like I say that's I don't think in fact I'm actually I'm very close to absolutely positive that that's not the first time that I heard Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy but I I I dare not exaggerate in saying that that was probably the first time that I heard Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy where it like it hit me you know, this is a really cool piece of music. And I think it also, in the original Nintendo Entertainment System version of Tetris, I think it was in that as well. And it was used, I don't know, I mean, it's just kind of this sort of MIDI kind of elevator 80s music. You know, not a, it, it's not even like synthwave. It's just this kind of MIDI dial tone almost or touch tone type of uh, music music almost in fact so you know to say that it's used well in the game well it doesn't sound like shit and honestly for the Nintendo Entertainment System sometimes that's about the most you can hope for you know so but you know that was definitely another time when it the usage of it stood out and I'm not saying that this is the greatest piece that Tchaikovsky ever did, but for some reason, this is just one of those pieces that I keep coming back to. I don't know what it is about this track that just captures my imagination, 
but it does. Now, it does need to be said that in the strictest sense, uh, Tchaikovsky didn't really do symphonies as such. He mostly did ballets. And the simple fact of the matter is that I've got very little patience with or tolerance of ballet. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's an art to it. I'm sure there's something that's just elegant and beautiful about it. It's just not for me. But the the nice thing about ballets, though, especially Tchaikovsky's work, is that you don't you don't need to see. You don't necessarily need the visual component. You know, you don't need the ballet of it all. You know, the music itself is is perfectly adequate. Now, I've seen, I guess, some of his work as a ballet. I'm like the thing that, again that really stands out here is the Nutcracker, and I think that's done extremely well, or has been done extremely well as a ballet, but. The point is, you know, you don't necessarily need the visual angle, you know, uh, of it in order for it to, to work. And certainly that is the case, I think, with Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, where it can actually be something else. It can actually take on different meanings for you, apart from whatever the intent is in the larger context of the Nutcracker, you know? So... If none of this makes any sense, guys, I just ask you to keep in mind, it's after one o'clock in the morning. I'm bleary eyed and getting a little, I mean, I was getting punchy just a couple of hours ago, but now I'm, I'm just, I'm hanging on by a very small thread. So just keep all that in mind. But I think that pretty much does it for Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Now, up next, we've got, this is actually Mozart, The Marriage of Figaro Overture. less of a rational justification for this one i just dig this piece of music this is there's something about it that to me it's just in a weird kind of way it's kind of at least from in my estimation this is sort of quintessential mozart you know i mean he may have done more famous pieces or for that matter maybe even more entertaining pieces as far as just stuff that's fun to listen to, you know? But for some reason, this is the Mozart piece that I at least keep coming back to. There's something that's just so at once elegant about it, but at the same time powerful about it, you know? And the, just the, first off, just even just the way that it starts, you know, that is extremely I don't know, like affecting, you know, you, 
are instantly in the in the headspace of what Mozart is attempting to accomplish, specifically with this piece. And you know, there's a strong argument out there that you know that's the really the I guess the purpose of any overture. You know, just to kind of give you the flavor of what's to come. And I think, by and large, the Marriage of Figaro Overture does just that. But it, I don't know why, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it's like it evokes these sort of these uh, sensations and, and emotions that for some reason they defy words, but it's almost like, like the very closest I can think of to describing it. It's almost like falling in love, you know, the, the it starts off so fragile at first and then it, it, it gets just big and sweeping and then it backs off again and then it's back to big and, you know, just the uncertainty of it all that, you know, that first time that you meet someone, you look in her eyes and, you know, she, it's like she can see through you somehow. And it's like all of that is brought across in the music and just the, the, the complexities of life and you know, meeting somebody new and on the one hand, the uncertainty of it, but because of the fact that I'm a guy, just kind of the bullshit guy bravado of it all, you know, it's all of that and more, so much more is, it's, it's captured in, in that piece of music that this little slice of life. And I guess that's one of the reasons why just in general, I, I find myself gravitating toward instrumental music just in general. But classical music specifically, that there's, on the one hand, there is the the composer's intent, but there's also the I don't know. There there's there's plenty of room for individual interpretation, you know, and just the baggage that you as as your own person, you know, an individual, what you bring to it, you know, there's plenty of room for that. And, you know, there are very few musical forms that easily lend themselves to that sort of thing. But, you know, classical music, not necessarily universally, but pretty frequently does just that. You know, something can mean what you want it to mean, you know. And there you have it. So, moving right along, that brings... That pretty much brings us to Ravel's Bolero.
You know, I remember the first time I heard Ravel's Bolero. I remember thinking, you know, wow, this is this is pretty much the classical music equivalent of Stairway to Heaven, you know, where it just it starts off soft and and almost un it, it's almost beyond your range of hearing and then it gets louder and it gets louder and it builds and it builds and it builds and then there's finally this huge explosion at the end you know and i just thought wow this is one of the great pieces of music that i at least have ever heard you know and that's what i thought the first time i heard it which I want to say at the time that I recorded this, that was something like two years ago or something like that. I don't know. It was around there. You know, you're on the right track. About a year and a half, something like that ago. And and it's like on the one hand, you know, I was, I guess, intellectually aware of the fact that classical music can be this. But to finally hear a, a composer at least in my opinion, just fucking nail it. Well, it, it was just, it was like such this breath of fresh air, you know? It's like, okay, so this is like Stairway to Heaven of the classical music set, and best of all, you don't have to listen to a bunch of, you know, doped out, drugged out, you know, fucked up lyrics, you know? You can just enjoy the elegance and the beauty and the sophistication of it all, and leave it at that, you know? So... One of the other things that, that Bolero taught me, though, was that there are this one and that one of orchestras, I suppose. You know, there's this thinking that basically it goes that the, the composer and the music are the real stars of the show, and the, the symphony... That's incidental, you know, and it's like on the one hand, I understand that, uh, I guess that view, that interpretation, but, you know, guys, the, at least for me, the simple reality is, you know, different orchestras and God knows different conductors are going to, they're going to interpret different, different pieces in different ways, you know, just as a... A, a given piece means something specific to me just on a personal level then maybe it means to you on a personal level well it's going to mean something different to them as well and so you know I don't think it would be I don't even think it's realistic to tell you the truth to expect a you know two separate conductors with two separate orchestras to have note for note the exact same performance and the exact same approach to the material and to be perfectly honest about it bolero is always going to be kind of you know prosecutions exhibit a in terms of how different a given piece of music can sound depending on the orchestra and the conductor because the the very first time I heard this piece, it's like, wow, this thing is so amazing. Ooh, that ending. Not so good. But then I heard uh, this. Uh, it, it was a uh, it was a performance of Bolero by. It, it was conducted by uh, Val. I, I'm gonna do my best to pronounce this guy's name. 
Valerie Gergiev. Uh, first name is V-A-L-E-R-Y, which I'm assuming I should pronounce Valerie. And Gergiev, G-E-R-G-I-E-V. It was Valerie Gergiev conducting the London Symphony Orchestra, taking them through Bolero. And this is a... You can find it on YouTube if you're so inclined. It's about uh, 15, almost 16 minutes long. And... The, the the conclusion, you know, because, you know, the I guess the beginning and, you know, the build-up and all of that stuff, you know, the crescendo, the that stuff is, I guess it's probably always going to sound the same or fairly comparable, depend, you know, no matter who's conducting or who's playing, but man, the conclusion, you know, that dun, 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 that stuff is going to be, I guess, what is a little bit more open to negotiation, perhaps. And the way that Valerie Gergiev and the London Symphony Orchestra approached this piece, it's like, that is exactly right. You know? And uh, it, it, it's definitely worth your time checking out. And because of the fact that it's so long, I probably can't play the entire damn thing in the background here, but hopefully I've at least given you enough to you know, give you something to go on here, you know? So that should pretty much be that. Now, next up, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce this, so I'm just going to do my best and hope for the best, but this is Wagner's Lohengrin Prelude to Act 3. serves, Professor Allen didn't actually use this Wagner piece on his uh, top Wagnerian jams episode, so I hope I'm right about that, and if I'm wrong, well, apologies to Professor Allen. I didn't exactly go out of my way to avoid the same stuff that, that he chose, but I also didn't go out of my way to choose the same stuff that he did, and so I'm... Hoping that all comes out in the wash, but at least the way it goes in my memory, he didn't, he didn't talk really at all, I don't think, about that piece in 
his uh, Wagner episode, so I'm hoping my memory matches up with reality. But in any case, I don't know why, but this this piece always kind of makes me think of, I guess, that, that kind of old-style European chivalry and... It's hard to describe it exactly, but I guess the 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 glory of battle and all of that, you know, these. But the you know you can't you also can't overlook the uh, I guess you know these gods that are running around duking it out. You've got Valkyries and all of this crazy shit that's going on. And there's just something about it that just speaks to the the I guess the 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 power and the honor, the glory and all that stuff of old Europe you know, in the old days. And, you know, I, I I don't know this to be true, but I kind of think that, or at least the way I interpret this, is that, you know, v- Wagner was kind of looking back on that same period himself, perhaps with a little bit of nostalgia, you know, maybe a little bit wistfully, you know, that he realized that... Uh, things had deteriorated in in Europe, even by his time, you know, and that he was l- casting his eyes back to, I shouldn't say necessarily a better time in Europe, but certainly a more optimistic time, perhaps. I don't know. It's like, a, like I said, I mean, sometimes it's like words fail you when it comes to describing like the emotion of things. Because honestly, how do you put feelings into words? But it's like there's a there's a romance that, you know, the human mind has with the past, especially the distant past. I mean, it's common to all of us, you know, and I can't help thinking that, you know, it hit Wagner as much as anybody. And honestly, the way that artists of any kind really tend to approach any kind of nostalgia. I've noticed that there's always a fair amount of suspicion. There's something in the artist's imagination that they don't really trust nostalgia for a specific time. You know, there are exceptions. You know, I mean, it's like John Hughes, there's a strong argument that he never really got past his fixation with his own adolescence. I'm not here to judge that. I'm just basically saying that in general, it's like artists are just inherently suspicious of nostalgia. I don't know why. And it doesn't seem to me that that was an affliction that got all that much to Wagner. You know, he was very happy to be nostalgic about a better time in Europe, a better time in in Germany, you know, a better time whenever, you know. And what I like about it is that it's kind of open-ended, you know, at least that interpretation, it's a little bit open-ended, which time specifically in Europe or which time specifically in Germany or just fucking whatever, is it that Wagner is casting his gaze toward here, you know? And the answer to that is whatever you want it to be, you know? It, that is, if you view this, this Lohengrin Act 3 prelude, I don't even, and guys, it does need to be said, I don't fucking speak German. I have no idea how to pronounce that word, Lohengrin. That's the best I can do. And if that bothers you, well, send me a correction. Fucking do it better. So, anyway. <sighs> Point is, you know, there's a... If you just listen to that piece as just kind of a standalone piece of music, which honestly, I think 
for some for some pieces they do work as part of a whole but they also work amazingly beautifully well on their own and that's kind of the way that I tend to view especially Lohengrin Prelude to Act 3 you know where that piece of music it's on the one hand it's like it's so specifically european and it's in in its flavor and all of that but it's also maybe a tiny bit melancholy and really nostalgic, you know? And that's, I guess, just my way of processing it, you know? So anyway, I really dig it. That's, I'm not, I'm not prepared to say that that's my favorite classical piece of all time or anything like that, but it is one that I do play quite a lot. I really enjoy. I've got a strong affection for. I really, in, in fact, enjoy not necessarily all of Wagner's work, but I enjoy a great bit of uh of the stuff that I've that I've heard you know he was really more of he wasn't he wasn't really like a classical music composer as such it was more he he did operas and guys I mean look I like symphonies and I like at least listening to ballets but this idea of opera yeah I don't think so you know I mean it's just it's one of those things that I just don't really connect to. Now, if you're listening to this and you just fucking love you some opera, dude, God bless. All right, have fun. Enjoy it. All I'm saying is that opera is one of those things that at least heretofore has always left me kind of cold. You know what I mean? Where... I can get in on the ground floor of a symphony or I can totally get on board with a ballet or whatever else. Something about an opera, I just fucking don't, I don't know what to do with that. You know, I really don't, you know? And so I'm, I don't mean this to be disrespectful of, you know, the singers or anything like that, because dude, you want to talk about talent. It takes an incredible amount of talent and discipline to be an opera singer. And I get that. I'm just saying, that there's a there's a mode of performance there that I just don't get, you know? It's just lost on me, at least at this point in time. So, all in all, though, Lohengrin, Prelude to Act 3, one of my favorite pieces of classical music of all time, and definitely one of my favorite Wagner pieces ever, it's it's just it's one of those pieces that it never wears out its welcome. I honestly don't know how many times I've heard it by this point. I just know I've heard it a bunch and it never gets old. So <sighs> those pieces and uh, and God knows dozens, maybe hundreds of others are why my commutes to and from work are now so much more pleasurable than I would have ever thought possible back in the old days and that is one of many reasons why i am in love with classical music and i think that's pretty much it for me this week so bye everybody i will see you next time